Okay. Um, let's open our Bibles to Second Samuel chapter ten. Second Samuel chapter ten. Not a Mother's Day sermon, sorry. Second <laughs> um, Samuel chapter ten. We'll read the first four verses before we open in prayer. <clears throat> it says, And it came to pass after this that the king of the children of Ammon died, and Hanun his son reigned in his stead. Then said David, I will show kindness unto Hanun, the son of um, Nahash, as his father showed kindness unto me. And David sent to comfort him by the hand of his servants for his father. And David's servants came into the land of the children of Ammon. And the princes of the children of Ammon said unto Hanun their lord, Thinkest thou that David doth honour thy father, that he sendeth comforters unto thee? Hath not David rather sent his servants unto thee to search the city and to spy it out and to overthrow it? Wherefore Hanan took David's servants and shaved off the um, so, sorry shaved off the one half of their beards and cut off their garments in the middle even to their buttocks and sent them away. All right, let's open in a word of prayer. So, Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this night. We thank you that we can come. Uh, to your house, Lord, to um, hear your word. We thank you for your word, Lord, and do pray that you would uh, just give me wisdom tonight, Lord. Pray that you would calm my nerves and just uh, help this to be a blessing and a challenge to us all, Lord. Help us to learn something from it that we can um, take away and apply to our lives, Lord. And do bless our time together. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> On March the 10th, 1974, a Lieutenant Hiru Onada was the last World War II Japanese soldier to surrender. So that's basically 30 years after the war finished. Anada had been left on the island of Lubang in the Philippines on December the 25th, 1944, with the command to carry on the mission even if Japan surrenders. Four other Japanese soldiers were also left on the island as Japan evacuated Lubang. One soldier surrendered in 1950, another was killed in a skirmish with local police in 1954, and then the third was killed in 1972. And then Anada continued his war alone um, after this point. All efforts to convince him to surrender or capture, capture him failed. He ignored messages from loudspeakers announcing Japan's surrender and that Japan was now an ally of the United States. Leaflets were dropped over the jungle begging him to surrender so he could return to Japan. He refused to believe or to surrender. Over the years, he lived off the land and raided the fields and the gardens of local citizens, and he was responsible for killing at least 30 nationals during his 29-year personal war. Almost half a million dollars was spent trying to locate and convince him to surrender, and 13,000 men were used to locate him. Finally, on March the 10th, 1974, almost 30 years after World War II had ended, Anada surrendered his rusty sword after receiving a personal command from his former superior officer who read the terms of the ceasefire order. Anada handed his sword to, his, to President Marcos who pardoned him. The war was now over. Anada was 22 years old when he, left, when he was left on the island and he returned a prematurely aged man of 52 to a strange and futuristic Japan. Anada stated... When he got back, nothing pleasant happened in the 29 years in the jungle. You know, like another, many people are fighting an unnecessary and a lonely battle against a God who is offering reconciliation and peace to them. 
He was being offered reconciliation and peace that whole time he was in the jungle for those 29 years, but he refused. And God is offering peace and reconciliation to many people in this world today, and oftentimes people refuse and fight a very lonely and unnecessary battle like him. We can see that very clearly illustrated in today's story. We're going to look at how David extended kindness unto Hanan, but then how his kindness was rejected and a war was started. So first of all, let's have a look at his kindness is offered. And we saw this in verses 1 to 2. We'll read them again quickly. It says, And it came to pass after this that the king of the children of Ammon died, and Hanan his son reigned in his stead. Then said David, I will show kindness unto Hanan the son of Nahash, as his father showed kindness unto me. And David sent to comfort him by the hand of his servants to his father, for his father. And David's servants came into the land of the children of Ammon. Now David's in a pretty good um, kindness-sharing mood at the moment. In our last chapter um, that we looked at, which is chapter 9, we read about how David um, sought to track down any remaining members of Saul's family um, to show them kindness in honouring a promise that he'd made to Jonathan. You might recall um, a long time ago when we preached on it that um, when Saul was trying to kill um, David at the start, him and Jonathan being best friends made a covenant. Their covenant was that Jonathan would protect David as best he could in the meantime from Saul in that when David became king that he would look after Jonathan's family. And Jonathan, uh, David was out to honour um, that promise that he'd made. And we saw last time, um, whether or not you remember, we saw last time that David was reflecting on how much God had done for him, how much God had set up his kingdom, how good everything was, all the blessings that God had bestowed upon him. And now he was giving back. He, tried, he, uh, he sought the Lord to build um, the temple. He wanted to see what he could do for God. He was asking questions. What can I do for God? What can I do for others to show God's goodness and to basically repay God's goodness to others? And it's continued here. David in this chapter is again taking, um, going out of his way to show kindness to a pagan king named Hanun. And we're told in these verses that it's for something that Hanun's father, whose name is Nahash, had done. Now, nowhere in Scripture are we told what this was. We're not recorded anywhere in Scripture what this um, kindness that um, Nahash had shown to David was. However, there are a lot of um, Jewish historians who um, believe they can tell the answer and they know what happened. Um, whether or not it's right, it, it could make sense. Um, a lot of Jewish historians believe that um, when David was on the run from Saul and he left his parents in Moab, which... Um, we know from earlier in these um, books of First and Second Samuel, he left his parents in Moab um, for protection while he was on the run from King Saul. Now, it's believed by Jewish historians that at some stage after this, the king of Moab decided to kill David's parents and indeed try and kill his brothers. And perhaps one of his brothers had fled to their closest um, neighbouring nations, which was Ammon, sorry, the Ammonites, and to the king Nahash who then perhaps gave refuge to this brother um, who the king of Moab was trying to um, kill. And this could all make sense um, when we look at There's a lot of detail in all this sort of stuff that I read about, which is probably too much to go into and everything. Um, however, it sort of does make sense if this was the case because it would explain a couple of things like David's anger towards Moab. Back in chapter 8, verse 2, we read, And he smote Moab... And measured them with a line, casting them down to the ground, even with two measures, oh, sorry, even with two lines measured, he put to death, and with one line 
one full line to keep alive. And so the Moabites became David's servants and brought gifts. Now, David brutally defeated the Moabites here in um, case of what it was. It doesn't seem very clear there, but he basically got them to lie down on the ground, had some sort of measure, and for two-thirds of the measure, all the people that were under that line that he ruled out, they were put to death, and the final third, whoever laid underneath that line, were kept and made their slaves. Now, if the Moab Moabites and their king was indeed still caring for David's family and had shown them kindness this whole time looking after his parents... Why would David brutally um, defeat them like this? doesn't really make sense. However, if they did, the king of Moab did um, kill his parents when they were meant to be showing them refuge, that would, of course, anger David to the point where he might do something like this. Um, so to me, that kind of makes sense. And, and we, we don't really know, but perhaps that's the act of kindness that Nahash had shown to David all these years ago, that he took one of his brothers in as refuge um, when the king of Moab was killing them for whatever reason that was. Um, might not be, might be, might not be. Either way though, Nahash has done something kind for David and all these years later, David is set out to repay that now to his son, um, who is now king, King, uh, um, sorry, Hanan is now king and he's repaying this favour. So David is trying to show kindness to him, just like he was showing to um, Mephibosheth, I didn't actually say his name before, but in the last chapter the heir of um, Saul that he found was Mephibosheth who was lame on his feet you might remember and he offered him kindness took him in looked after him he's offering the same kindness to him now David was so grateful for all that God had done for him that he wanted to pass this kindness on to other people so he says here I'm going to send servants to Nahash I'm sorry not Nahash his son Hanan I'm going to get these mixed up all night sent servants to his son Hanan to comfort him over the death of his father Nahash <laughs> that's the way so sent servants here to comfort him and that's that's what his plan was which was a pretty common um, practice back in these days particularly among allies so this was sort of I guess like David's way of saying I, I don't have a, a beef with you at the moment we're we're fine all that sort of stuff I suppose um, but he was offering kindness and he wanted to show the love of God through this act of kindness and that's what he was doing he was showing God's love and God's goodness. He was reflecting in the last chapter on how great God has been to him and now he wants to give this greatness and this kindness to other people. You know, that's, that's for us as well. The same thing should be true for us, shouldn't it? When we think about everything that God has done for us, God has been incredibly good to us in giving us everything that we've got, much more than we ever deserve. Our salvation alone is, is reason for this. God gave us salvation when we, when we don't deserve it. While we were sinners, he died for us. You know, this love and this goodness that God gave to us, that should motivate us to pass that goodness, that kindness and that love of God onto other people so that others can see God's love in us and we be that testimony, that witness, I suppose, if you like, for God. You know, we should show the love of God to others through our kindness like David did here. You know, this kindness wasn't very well received though, which is our second point, which is the kindness was rejected. So kindness was offered and now the kindness was rejected. In verses 3 to 4 it says, And the princes of the children of Ammon said unto Hanan their lord, Thinkest thou that David doth honour thy father, that he sent comforters unto thee? Hath not David rather sent his servants unto thee to search the city and to spy it out and to overthrow it? Wherefore Hanan took David's servants and shaved off the one half of their beards and cut off their garments in the middle, even to their buttocks, and sent them away. 
You know, Hanan was very ill-advised here by his princes that David's actions were far from pure. That David didn't care about comforting them. David didn't care about um, showing the kindness or anything. He was simply sending these servants here to spy out the city so that he could attack it. We don't know the reason for these princes to have this attitude and, and to say these things to the king. There's no point for it, really. There's no need for it. However, I believe and I, I think simply is just a hatred for Israel. It's my belief. These nations around, the, around Israel hated Israel as God's chosen people. They always have. They always will. They still do today. People hate Israel as they are God's people. And I believe this hatred is what caused these princes, just the despisement of Israel said, no, David's not doing this out of a good reason. David's doing it to come and attack our city and despite out. You can't believe him. You know, whatever the reason was for um, them giving this ill advisement, whether they genuinely were scared that this is what David did, believed it, or whether they were just trying to stir up trouble, um, Hanan listened to them. He believed their nonsense and he humiliated David's servants in the most humiliating way that he could. He shaved off half of their beards and then cut their garments off at the waist height. Now, regarding their beards, um, commentator Gil wrote, this was a disgraceful insult to these ambassadors from Israel. In that culture, many men would rather die than to have their beards shaved off. Because of being clean, shaven was the mark of a slave, but the free men wore beards. Another commentator said, With the value universally set upon the beard by the Hebrews and other Oriental nations as being a man's greatest ornament, the cutting off of one half of it was the greatest insult that could have been offered to the ambassadors and through them to David their king. You know, it was a huge humiliation greatest humiliation that this king could have done to David's servants and not to mention that it's an embarrassment but it is also breaking part of the ceremonial law that God gave to them God ordered them not to um, do that to their beards and to it says to round them off and things in oh, where was that no I can't remember Deuteronomy Leviticus one of those and uh, it talks about that and it was breaking the ceremonial law so this was a great insult to these men, and not only to these men, but it was a direct insult and humiliation to David himself. It was an attack on David. And in regards to the garments, if the beards wasn't enough, then they cut their garments off at sort of waist level, like belt level, so then when they had to leave the city, they were completely exposed, and they would have been highly embarrassed and ashamed as they left this city. You know, messengers were then sent ahead or, or someone somehow got a message through to David as to what had happened. And David responded with respect and kindness towards his men. You know, David didn't use um, this as a political tools to whip up anger against the Ammonites. He didn't straightaway declare war against the Ammonites or anything in revenge. He cared more for his own people's dignity and honour. He told them to wait in, Jer in um, Jericho before returning to Jerusalem. Now Jericho would have been the first city that they came to once they crossed the Jordan River. And um, the commentators all believe that at this time Jericho was still um, not rebuilt, would have been um, still unbuilt after Joshua and his men destroyed it through God's power. And so there would have been very few, if any, people living in Jericho. So this would have been a great place to wait and to uh, stay there until their beards are fully grown um, it says in verse 5 there we haven't actually read verse 5 yet have we no nope, sorry about that verse 5 it says you won't know what I'm talking about it says when they told it to David he sent to meet them because the men were greatly ashamed and the king said tarry at Jericho until your beards be grown and then return 
That's the verse I'm talking about. So David allowed them to stay at Jericho, um, a place where they wouldn't have suffered much humiliation, where there wouldn't have been many people, if any, at all, and they could wait there until their beards are fully grown. And I'm sure David would have sent back with a messenger fresh garments and things like that for him and supplies as well while they waited in Jericho. You know, sorry, when we think about how Hanan treated David's servants, we can relate it to our own lives. Go with me to John chapter 15. Some well-known verses, but we'll turn there anyway. John chapter 15, verses 18 to 19. I'm sure we know these well, but it says, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love his own. But because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. You know, the world hates us as Christians, the world hates Israel as God's people because it hated God first. It's not something personal, it's because they hate um, Jesus. They hated Christ, they will hate his followers, and the same is true here. You know, David's servants were his ambassadors. And likewise, we are ambassadors for Christ. We're told that in 2 Corinthians 5.20, we won't turn there, but we're told in 2 Corinthians 5.20 that we are ambassadors of Christ. You know, but the gospel message... It's, um, and those that share it, those ambassadors, us, we're not always well received by the world, are we? And the message isn't very well received by the world at times. You know, this should not deter us, though, from being ambassadors for Christ. There's lots of verses about this. Let's go to one of them, 2 Timothy chapter 1, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8. There's many verses that talk about this, but in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8, it says... Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God. You know, as Christians, we will suffer. We're told that in the word of God. We're going to suffer persecution. We're going to be mocked, humiliated, things at times, just like David's servants here. As ambassadors of Christ, we're going to suffer those things, but that shouldn't deter us from being ambassadors for Christ, should it? That shouldn't stop us from getting the word out, from being witnesses to those around us, from being that shining light in this dark world, from being a testimony that people can see the love of God and the kindness of God through us by extending it to others. You know, we should do all these things even though the world will often reject us just as Hanun rejected David's ambassadors. This leads me to my third point, which is the rejectors are then punished. The rejectors are punished. In verse 6 it says, And when the children of Ammon saw that they stank before David, the children of Ammon sent and hired the Syrians of uh, Bethrehob and the Syrians of Zobah, 20,000 footmen, and of King Mahaka, I think that's right, 1,000 men, and of Ishtob, 12,000 men. Now the words uh, stank here, it says, And when the children of Ammon saw that they stank before David, it means made repulsive. The Ammonites here, their king, and indeed all of um, the Ammonites, it seems like not long after King Hanun had done this um, and humiliated David's ambassadors, that they realised that they made a big mistake. They probably thought about how David reacted to this, and although David hadn't done anything, he hasn't declared war, he hasn't retaliated, they were probably fearful that David would retaliate, fearful that David would attack them. And I imagine that it's sort of one of those things like, well, that seemed like a good idea at the time, but... Not so much now, as they thought about how much they would have upset David with what they've done. 
So, and they decided that they would fix it by hiring a um, Syrian army. You know, they did this to themselves, didn't they? They didn't, um, David, sorry, didn't reject the Ammonites. They made themselves repulsive to Israel. And their solution was this then to hire a big army to attack Israel first, fearing that David would attack them for their actions. So they sent and hired 33,000 Syrians. And this was a common practice apparently in the ancient world, hiring other soldiers from other nations if you couldn't fight your own battles. But it also wasn't very cheap. In First Chronicles 19.6, we won't go there, but that's the parallel passage to this nearly word for word. But we're told in that passage that when they hired these Syrians, they paid 1,000 talents of silver to the Syrians for it. Now, it's not known exactly how much this would be worth, but all the reading and studying and that that I did, um, the bare minimum was at least $2 million. However, most people think that it was more likely around the $8 million mark. Some people said it was even a lot more than that. Um, needless to say, this was quite an expensive little uh, front that they had going, forking out millions and millions of dollars to the Syrians to gather an army to fix a problem that they had made, which actually wasn't even a problem yet, because in verse 7 we read, and when David heard of it, so when David heard that they'd hired this massive Syrian army, he sent Joab, who is his general, and all the hosts of the mighty men. And now a war is about to start. Until this point, David hadn't retaliated. David hadn't done anything. He'd allowed his men to wait in Jericho. He'd responded with kindness and gratitude to them. He hadn't done anything to the Ammonites. Them fearing their own mistake now went and spent millions of dollars to hire these Syrians to come and fight a battle for them that wasn't even a battle yet. And in doing so, they've created a battle um, for themselves. Quite ironic that, um, I think. We're told then there that after David hears of this in verse 7, we read that he sent Joab and all the hosts of the mighty men. Now, I spent a long time trying to figure out exactly who David sent to this battle. Um, even spoke to Pastor and Pastor Davies about it. And it seems like there's not really a definitive answer because the Hebrew is not very clear on it either. Now, some commentators believe that it means that he just sent his mighty men, um, of which there was 37 of them. Um, we're told later on in 2 Samuel, and we'll, we'll read that in some of that in a little bit, um, including the general job would have made an army of 38. And now that against 33,000 plus the Ammonites themselves, they would have had their own small army, probably less than 33,000, but 38 men against 40, 50,000 men seems quite ridiculous, doesn't it? However, if it's in God's hands, it's not ridiculous at all, is it? Gideon fought against an army with not very men at all, and with God, well, with all things are possible. It could have been 38 men. It could have also been an army um, of, of men, probably not as big as the Syrians and the Ammonites' army, that included the mighty men, David's mighty men, his famous um, 37 mighty men. Either way, it included David's 37 mighty men, which were a force to be reckoned with. And you talk about special forces, they were the, <laughs> the elite of the elite special forces. In 2 Samuel 23.8, we're told um, a few of these um, things that these mighty men accomplished and it has all 37 names for you and where they come from we're not going to read it all but one of these mighty men was Adino the Esnite and he was famous for killing 800 men at one time another was Jashob, Jashab, sorry, Jashabim who killed 300 men at one time another was Benaiah who killed a lion in a pit on a snowy day we're told 
I like that detail. Um, this man also killed a, took on a huge Egyptian warrior who was not much um, smaller than Goliath um, and killed him with his own spear. And that is just a glimpse of um, who these mighty men were, these 37 mighty men that David had as his, I guess, special forces type people. You know, either way, whether it was an army including these or an army of just them, these people were included in this battle. And God allowed these mighty men to be so victorious because they trusted in God. They believed in God, they honoured God, and they gave God the, um, the glory for their fights, which we're about to see soon. And that's why God made these men so mighty. Let's have a look now at the um, next few verses. We'll read verses 8 to 12, getting ready for the big battle, the big climax. And the children of Ammon came out and put the battle in array at, at the entering in of the gate. And the Syrians of Zoab and of Rehob and of Ishtob and Maachah were there, were by themselves in the field. When Job saw that the front of the battle was against him before and behind, he chose of all the choice men of Israel and put them in array against the Syrians. And the rest of the people he delivered into the hand of Abishai his brother, that he might put them in array against the children of Ammon. And he said, If the Syrians be too strong for me, then thou shalt help me. But if the children of Ammon be too strong for thee, then I will come and help thee. Be of good courage and let us play the men for our people and for the cities of our God. And the Lord do that which seemeth him good. And when Job and his army get to the Ammonites, they march out there to meet them. They find the Ammonites were um, in front of their city. They'd come out of their city gate and waiting for them. And then they find out that they were surrounded. So the Ammonites were waiting in front of the city. Meanwhile, these 33,000 Syrians were waiting in a field by themselves somewhere, obviously well out of sight. And when the Israelites came towards the um, Ammonite city, the Syrians came in behind them. So now they were surrounded. They had the Ammonite army in front of them and these 33,000 Syrians behind them um, surrounded. So this way the Syrians thought they can't flee, they can't escape. We've got two armies fighting against the one that logically they should win. Joab immediately came up with a plan. He separates his men and he sends the strongest to fight with him backwards against the Syrians. And he sends the other men with his brother Abishai to fight against the Ammonites. And I love when um, he talks to um, them here in verse 11, he says, after he separates his army in two, he says, and he said, this is to Abishai's brother, if the Syrians to be too strong for me, then thou shalt help me. But if the children of Ammon be too strong for thee, then I will come and help thee. So he says here, if we're losing to the Syrians, you guys come and help us. If you're losing to the Ammonites, we'll go and help you. You notice what, what's missing there? A plan C. Nowhere does he have a plan C that if they're both too strong for us, then this is our escape route. He didn't have one. He didn't need one. Because we see in verse 12 here, be of good courage and let us play the men of our people and the cities, so, sorry, for the cities of our God and the Lord do that which seemeth him good. They were fighting for God. They were giving God the glory here and because they were fighting for the Lord in God's glory, they didn't need an escape plan, did they? They didn't need a plan C. They knew that God was going to fight this battle for them and that God's will would be done in the end. So he doesn't have a plan C here. He just says, if you guys are struggling, we'll help you, vice versa, and this battle is going to be ours. You know, in this speech as well, in verse 12, he says, let us play. Where he says there, be of good courage and let us play 
the men of our people. That let us play just means to be strong. So he's saying there, be strong for our people and for the cities that God has given us, is what he says there in verse 12. So he's recognizing God's goodness to them. Before this fight has taken place, he's saying, let's be strong to protect what God's given us, our people, and all the cities that God's given us. So the land that God's given us as well. So he's already giving God the glory there. And then, like we said, he's saying, let the Lord do what seemeth him good. This is God's battle. He will take care of it. You know, Joab wisely prepared for the battle to the best of his ability. He would train hard and work hard and study strategies and things to, to get the victory. But at the same time, he knew that the outcome was ultimately the Lord's. Now, we have, need to have the same attitude. Work hard for God in whatever it is that we do, whether that be at school, at home, at church, at work, whatever we do. We work hard for God. We do the best of our ability. Not our second best, we do our best, but ultimately we leave everything in God's hands, don't we? And we give God the glory for whatever comes of it. You know, then the battle gets underway. Here's the, um, the battle, verses 13 to 14. Are ready for it? And Joab drew nigh and the people that were with him unto the battle against the Syrians, and they fled before him. And when the children of Ammon saw that the Syrians were fled, then fled they also before Abishai and entered into the city. So Joab returned from the children of Ammon and came to Jerusalem. There's our battle. <laughs> Bit of an anticlimax, isn't it? If this was a movie, it'd be one of those movies where they ran out of money at the end before the final part and couldn't finish it or something. We read here that, um, that Joab and his men that are facing the Syrians, they turn around to fight the Syrians and the Syrians flee before them. Now, some commentators think that there was some sort of battle that did take place. I don't think that's true. I don't know of, I could be wrong, but I don't know of any battles that Israel takes place in in the word of God where God does not tell us when they have defeated them, when they have attacked them, how many people they've killed or that they um, uh, defeated them or use some sort of terminology to tell us that they beat them with the sword and things or a favourite one greatly discomforted them with the sword, things like that. This just says that they fled. You know, this is something that God promised in Israel that is following him. In Deuteronomy 28, 7, it says, The Lord shall cause thine enemies that rise up against thee to be smitten before thy face. They shall come out against thee one way and flee before thee seven ways. That was a promise that God made to Israel. If they are following him, living for God, doing his will, all these enemies that come up before them, they've got no chance. The enemies will flee before them, um, before their faces. And I believe this is exactly what happened here. Whether these Syrians have seen these mighty men and they've heard rumours about these mighty men that have killed hundreds of people themselves in battle and just got fearful, whether God has worked some miracle in causing them to, to fear, which we know God has done plenty of times before for Israel, whatever the reason, these Syrians fear. And in response to that, the Ammonites, they also flee and return into their own city. And then the battle's won. Joab returns back to um, Jerusalem and the battle's over although it's not. The story does not end there, though. Now, this would have been a great time for the Syrians to rethink their alliances and rethink who they were teaming up with and who they were teaming up against and to probably seek some reconciliation with David. But no. Upon seeing defeat of their own men, the Syrians gathered a bigger army to attack Israel. They couldn't be humiliated like that. They won't stand for being defeated in battle like that, so this time their army is much, much bigger. Let's have a read of the rest of the chapter now. 
from verses 15 on it says, And when the Syrians saw that they were smitten before Israel, and that word smitten there simply means defeated, um, and Hadarezer sent and brought out the Syrians that were beyond the river, and they came to Halam and to Shobak, the captain of the host of Hadarezer, went before them. And when it was told David, he gathered all Israel together and passed over Jordan and came to Helam. And the Assyrians set themselves in array against David and fought with him. And the Syrians fled before Israel and David slew the men of 700 chariots of the Syrians and 40,000 horsemen and smote Shobak, the captain of their hosts, who died there. And when all the kings that were servants to Hadarazah saw that they were smitten before Israel, they made peace with Israel and served them. So the Syrians feared to help the children of Ammon any more. Now this is the battle that was the climax coming. The story didn't end there. The Syrians, humiliated, decided to get a much bigger army. David hears about this bigger army and he himself takes out a bigger army. This time we're told that he takes out all of Israel's army. Takes out all of Israel to the battle and he himself goes to this battle this time as well um, to fight for, for God. The outcome of this, though, is the same. It's the same as the last one, just this time at a greater cost to the Syrians. The Syrians fled after David's army killed 47,000 men of theirs. Now, it says in 2 Samuel here that they killed the men of 700 chariots, while over in 2 Chronicles it says um, 7,000 men who fought in chariots. It seems to be a little bit of a um, contradiction there, but not really when you look at the the wording of it, and um, and all the commentators agree here. Seems to be that there could have been 10 people that rode into battle per chariot, and then as they get into battle, then they dismount and start fighting, um, which would have been 700 chariots with 10 men on each would have been 7,000 men. That's make, so it makes it 7,000 men. So it would make sense in 2 Samuel when they say, in 2 Samuel it says, the men of 700 chariots. And apparently this was common practice. They'd ride the chariots in with lots of men. The men would disembark and then start fighting. So 7,000 of those chariot men were killed in this battle, along with 40,000 um, uh, foot horsemen, it says as well. In Second Chronicles, it talks about 40,000 footmen. Some believe that this means there was 40,000 horsemen, 40,000 footmen, which means 87,000 all up. Um, or it could be that the horsemen have disembarked and were killed on foot as well. Either way, at least 47,000 people have died in this battle. And then the Syrians fled. Then the Syrian kings also surrendered to Israel and became their servants. And the Syrians also never wanted to help the Ammonites again. You know, I don't blame them for that, that choice either after this. You know, this whole story is very similar to the message of Christ. You know, we are Christ's ambassadors. We are to show God's loving kindness to others and be witnesses for him after all he's done for us like i talked about after god's goodness to us and giving us salvation when we don't deserve it, and for everything else you can think of that god's given you in your life all that goodness we should be passing that to on to others be him his ambassadors share the gospel with others who need it you know but often we are ridiculed for it because the world hated christ first you know same as david's servants offering comfort but being sent away humiliated the world then fights and turns against God. A lot of people in this world are then fighting an unnecessary and lonely battle against a God who is offering them peace and reconciliation. You know, notice though that God didn't cast out the Syrians straight away. 
the Ammonites straight away. God didn't cast them out straight away. They went back. They could have had a chance to reconcile with David and to not fight with the Ammonites anymore, these Syrians, to, to stop there. But they didn't. They chose to continue this lonely fight that God was always going to win. You know, many people are fighting a lonely battle against God, just like that Japanese soldier in the introduction for 29 years. You know, we should be that hope for them, though. We should be telling them the good news that God has not cast them out yet, that God is not done with them and that there is still time to repent. There is reconciliation and peace to be had. Now, we should be that light for men no matter what ridicule or humiliation or persecution will come of it, like David's ambassadors. So I wonder in closing, what type of ambassadors of Christ are we? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this night. We thank you for this next chapter in uh, 2 Samuel. We thank you for everything we can learn from this um, chapter, Lord. There's so many other things we could learn from it, but we thank you that... Uh, Lord, you've done so much for us. You've given us salvation. You've given us um, so many things in our lives that we can be grateful for, um, including this church and that, Lord. And do pray that you'd help us to um, repay that greatness, Lord, by showing our, um, your kindness, your love, and um, your gratitude to others in our lives by sharing the gospel message, Lord, and being your ambassadors no matter what the cost is. And Lord, for... Um, for those that are still fighting a lonely battle, Lord, we pray that you would just help them to realise that there is still peace and reconciliation to be had with you, that you are not done with them, not cast them out yet, Lord. And help us to get this message across as your ambassadors, Lord. Pray the bless the rest of our time in Jesus' name. Amen.